broadcasting from the spaceship in the sky to the simulation in the mind. Let's all embark on another journey of Conversations on the Fringe. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Josh, and that is my guest tonight, Dr. Tal Braun, and this is Red Pill Project's Conversations on the Fringe. This is where we have a deep dive into the discussion of those things that uh, are outside of normal conversation, the things that you don't usually talk about at the dinner table, but who knows, maybe these days you do. Uh, This is where we discuss those topics that uh, are in the top of everybody's mind, but you know, people are uh, are timid to, to really talk about. And tonight, we're going to be talking about something very, very serious. And, you know, this is typically not the kind of conversation we'd have on this show. But I thought this was so important to what Dr. Braun has to say that we get him on here, we get him for 90 minutes, and we talk to him about what's happening in the world right now. And we're going to discuss a plethora of topics from what I call depopulation endgame. We're going to talk about the bioweapon. We're going to talk about climate change, global warming, quote unquote. We're going to talk about synthetic biology. We're going to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. And we're going to talk about transhumanism, the World Economic Forum. We're, we're just going to lay it all out tonight. And I think this is going to be a great show for for those who don't know Dr. Tal Braun. He's a, well, a well-known international Internationally, as an expert teacher in threat assessment, threat management, and response in situations involving bioterrorism, biowarfare, and all kinds of violent threats, government agencies and corporations seek his guidance and training in threat management and prevention. And as an expert witness in court, Dr. Brown, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, good, man. That's uh, quite the intro. I, I, uh, I Just as you said, some of the topics we're going to cover, um, I think one of the greatest things about always talking to you is the, the the conversation of sharing with somebody who's equally as pa- passionate, who's uh, equally as strong as a patriot, and uh, who's equally as honest and blunt. So I, you know, I think it's I think these conversations are crucial. I don't know that you can have even in the most uh, respectful, polite circles right now. Mm-hmm. I think that these conversations, no matter even if you're in the same tribe or people in the same belief system, they just get heated so quickly. Um, short fuse on on conversations, and quite rightly so. Um, it would be abnormal if 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 people that are no, that knowing that are aware aware awake, uh, conscious of the fact that we are living through a genocide, a democide, a genocide. I mean, you know, a a, a government sanctioned around the world slaughtering uh, of human beings. I, I think that there'd be quite there'd be something wrong with somebody that wasn't emotional about these topics. And I think that when you pretend that they are not, that it doesn't exist or it's not happening and you're sort of superficial about it, that's when you can get away with like a couple of minutes of conversation. But if you go deep, yeah, you're, you're bound, you're bound to hit some, some emotional parts that, that is either too far for somebody to, 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 to agree with you or it gets too scary and then they start getting defensive. And so, yeah, let's just do this and let's, let's not hold back. Um, yeah. at the same, at the same time, you, you've got the advantage of having some whiskey. I've got, I'm going to do, I'm going to plug a non-sponsor, you know, Trader Joe's is not currently sponsoring me. Um, I am willing to start taking on, uh, sponsors as I, as I do this work, like many of us. Um, yeah, there's something really amusing about this and I want to get your take on this. Yeah. Um, and is it okay if I curse in the show? I don't know what your audience <laughs> is about, right you know, I don't see the R rated in the sign, but you know, let, let me give people a warning. Um, as I get more emotional about topics and I get more raw, I definitely start 
uh, cursing like a sailor, um, and so you may hear a couple of uh, a couple of uh, crass terms um, as I as I want to make sure that people know the, how I feel about something. So Trader Joe's, if you're listening, you can approach me and you could decide that you're going to sponsor me because something that occurred to me recently, which sort of made me stop in my tracks and I thought about it and then I try to work out how I feel about it. You know, I got, you know, as, as, as the, as the youths would say, I got covered by all the feels. Um, and, uh, it was that nobody asked me to be doing what I'm doing right now. Hmm. Like this is, this is, you know, pre pandemic, I was traveling regularly. Uh, I would do blocks of work where I would research the shit out of something or there'd be a, a, a mass casualty attack somewhere, you know, Vegas style, you know, slaughter. And then I would have to know everything about it. And I would talk to people on the ground and I would debrief people. And, you know, people would make phone calls to me offline as well. I think something that I've always enjoyed is sort of that the work is both formal and informal. Like there was a time period where a lot of firefighters that had responded to Vegas, they just weren't okay. Um, and they weren't on the clock. So that wasn't, they couldn't take time off. Um, it wasn't considered a work disability. The fact that they had, you know, a lot of these were veterans. So they got PTSD, um, from that event. They did great work, but then they were really fucked when they got home to California. And, um, and basically the, the, the state didn't give a shit that they'd landed a hand. And that they basically had moved bodies, um, you know, picked up people and uh, reunited somebody with their dead child. I mean, and so people would just make offline phone calls to me. Hey, I'm dealing with this guy. And can you have a chat to him? And, you know, this guy, can you talk him off the ledge? You know, that the kind of work that I was doing, there was always this reciprocal agreement that should be taking place in any form of, of professional exchange, which is I've got this task will you like to do it? And here's the exchange, you know, here it is, whether it's feel good about what you're doing, whether it's pay, whether it's, Hey, we'll put you up in a hotel for free, but we don't have any, you know, money to pay you as a keynote speaker. But, you know, um, there'll be a lot of people in the audience that may have some training money for you. You know, there's always this exchange mm -hmm. this time around the pandemic hits and right at the beginning, the very first layer to this were informal, uh, calls where people said, doc, we're all talking about the, the, the possibility that this is biowarfare. What do you think? And that's not something that I can just, as a professional, that I can just say, yeah, I think so. I've got a hunch. So I had to start working like I would do in any, any other situation that my opinion became one that would stand up in court. Like, you know, if somebody's asking a professional opinion, it's like asking a mechanic that's standing there with your car. The mechanic can't just make up shit, right? Because that would be unethical. And also you would lose trust pretty quickly um, if you're completely wrong about what the problem is. So it's okay to say you don't know, but then you have to go and discover and then you have to come back with your discovery. And so right from the beginning of this, there was this really weird space where people were wanting a ton of information, but it was all informal and unpaid. And the gratitude I've received from people is, is obviously worth it. And, and watching people survive this shit is worth it. But there's also something really weird about it, which is this, am I doing something in a way that is self-motivational? Self so what's my agenda in it? Because unlike that exchange, nobody asked me to do the work. Nobody's asked mm -hmm. me to bust my ass for three years um, and there's a lot of us um, that are that are like that, you know, in terms of doing this work. So, you know, it it, it just it's it sort of making me feel these that, like that these days that I've got to be okay 
with hearing more people saying, no, we do, we do want you doing the work. And then I have to be able to, you know, work out what that exchange looks like as I move forward, because ultimately this pandemic is not slowing down. They're doubling down. Right. How was that for a, a you know, a mouthful way at the beginning, man? It's I a beautiful monologue. My- I mean, it, it, it really, it, it sets the tone of what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, in, in the first part of this, you did talk about, we're going through this genocide and um, I, I want to note because there is a bioweapon that has been released. Everybody that's watching this is is understanding this. And we're going to talk. We're going to get into this and how the, how and why this is such. But there's another component as well that is playing out that I think everybody needs to be aware of. Most people do know this. But this event could not be happening unless they set the groundwork for the last 40 years of this one specific aspect. And this is psychological warfare. This is mass formation psychosis. The problem is, is that people don't realize that they're under attack. People don't understand that their medical freedoms have been violated and they've been injected with a bioweapon. And the media and the propaganda and, and Hollywood and and DC and politicians and medical doctors have just gone along with it so much because they are victims to this as well or perpetuators of this so well uh, so much yeah. that these people just fall in line like mindless sheep and accept what they're told simply because it came from an authority above them. And we need to understand and remember that because if we look back at World War II Nazi Germany and any one of those Jews who had a glimpse into the future, any one of those Christians or trade unionists or any of them that were persecuted had a glimpse into the future and knew that they would be slaughtered, it would have been a lot lot different of a story getting on the trains, buses, and being marched in the concentration camps. It probably would have never have happened because they would have rose up in troves and fought back. And see, there's this psychological component as well. So can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, let me think about a couple of things there. One of which is that um, all there's a there's the, I think the Chinese word for this would be um, um, te, uh, uh, te um, in, in Chinese martial arts, the idea of timing and, 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 and basically understanding that, um, you know, you've got, you can have a fast, rapid attack. Like if somebody mm-hmm. strikes at you, right. And, and you, and you get to defend against, um, uh, whether it's open hand or a weapon, like the, the idea of what that timing looks like, that sequence events in time and space in context, but also the, the speed of attack is going to change the defense. Right. And I think a lot of people, um, don't have an experience with extremely slow attacks. Right. I mean, if you think about like the physicality of a bar fight, right, um, like how quickly that can escalate, how quickly it can be over, you know, um, the, the, the rapid speed of somebody throwing a punch at you. But a planned methodical attack, if, if, if somebody wanted to assassinate somebody and they spent three years working out exactly what that assassination is going to be, like the chances of them pulling it off is pretty high. Yeah. Um, they're going to know a lot about their, their target. And so you're right. And I think it goes even further. I think, I think 40 years is about right in terms of this campaign, but I think it goes further. It just, that we have been dealing with this form of, um, slow brood, purposeful, intentional violence attack through, through the history of, 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 of humankind. You know, when, when, when people ask me about mass killings and they talk about like, they start thinking about school shootings and school bombings and they talk about Columbine, um, 
you know, you got to go back and you got to look at at attacks that took place um, uh, all the way back thousands of years, where the first kind of attacks, the first slaughters that I found, were very similar to what we're going through now, where it would be um, a group of people pushed into a grave, um, more than likely alive, right? A big hole dug. Uh, that was, you know, more than likely some form of animal trap um, where they would run that animal towards the hole and then that large woolly mammoth would fall down a hole and it was it was an effective way of pulling down an animal. But then those same traps were used for humans where they drove humans either off a cliff or they drove humans into pits. And so some of the, fir- the earliest mass killings that I found are just simply what I feel it might sound a little hokey to people, but I feel like what's been playing out through the through humankind is just a war between Neanderthals, what we call modern day humans, and Denisovians, mm-hmm. and that the first mass killings that I can find are modern day humans versus Neanderthals, and they've rounded up the Neanderthals with slow, purposeful, methodical predatory attacks. And I think now, now I think that it's the the difference is that you can you use technology. And you can use more sophisticated propaganda and you can use more sophisticated trickery. Um, But ultimately, I think a big part of what you're talking about that we should get into tonight is the psychology of the masses that watch on the sidelines. You know, um, bystander, um, bystander apathy and bystander effect is something that I would have to teach as part of violence prevention, because most people assume that if they saw a violent act, that they would get involved. Mm. But the cases show you that they don't. Like there was a really, really horrible slaying of a Lululemon empl- uh, employee. And it went on for hours. And there was an Apple store that was hearing someone screaming for hours. No one went to go check. They were right next door. The, the idea that we would get involved, the idea that most people would feel like that they would not be a sheep is an illusion. Because we're not programmed to necessarily go towards danger. Um, the, in fact, um, a really interesting thing about violence is that um, repetitive violence gets boring. Um, it's, it's the reason that most people will hear their neighbors arguing and they'll know at the back of the head, shit, man, that's going to that's going to end up really badly one day. Somebody's going to die in that house one day. Like if you if you know true domestic violence, if you right. know true intimate partner violence and eventually they you just tune out the, the, the arguing. Because it's not it's not functional and it's kind of dangerous for you to intervene. If you go in that situation, if you run towards the sound of the, the gunfire or if you knock on the neighbor's door, you are intervening into a situation that is violent and the chances of you getting hurt. So we that's basically a big part of what's happening to society now. The level of self-protection is one of an understanding that there is an inherent message that if you intervene, bad stuff's going to happen to you, whether it's losing your job, losing your life, losing your livelihood, losing credibility. And you would you would be amazed. But I think that most people don't really think about um, how the loss of self-worth in, in terms of shame is such a deep motivator that you can let people know that there's a threat of embarrassment. And that's enough for people. Like the idea that they'll be called out in public. Like the, the, the term anti-vaxxer, for example. Like if, if, if anti-vaxxer was, was thrown out in the same way as people think about anti-Semitism or racism or anything else, but it's used as a purposeful, vindictive, violent tool. 
It is you casting a huge net over somebody. You're making you're making it appear that you understand their belief systems. It makes it makes this it it it, it narrows down this huge topic into this is you, <laughs> and that and and ultimately that's a stereotype. And as we know, stereotypes get used to perpetuate violence. And so that that's one of them that's just that's out there is this sort of very subtle form uh, of of intimidation. But I want to tell you a story. Sure. Um, and then and then take it from this story. The the. I want to break this down into a more easy way that I'm a very practical guy. I don't, I, people ask, you know, how many academic papers have you written? Well, I've written a master's thesis. Um, and then I wrote a doctorate of a couple of hundred pages. I don't know that I'm a publishing author. I don't know that I'm interested in, in academic journals, but I, what I really like is if you show me how to use a ha hammer better than I'm hammering in a nail, and then I go get to hammer in a nail and it works better. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm cool with that. I don't know that I want to publish a paper on it and i if if you're around me and i see you hammering something and you're open to sh me hearing that i just learned a new technique then i'm the type of person who wants to share that but i don't really need to say to reference it i don't really need to say that there's been a clinical trial run uh, uh some form of methodical testing of this hammer technique i could just be like josh here's some cool shit i just learned if you swing it this way the hammer goes in so i want to tell you about an, ex an experiment that i did Okay. I got an opportunity as one of my blocks when I was becoming a clinical psychologist. I got these blocks of learning where you were um, in a hospital setting or a maximum security prison or uh, a chronic facility. And, and you were basically learning about all the various bad stuff that can happen to human beings that take them to the fringes and uh, to, the, to the depths of disparity. And one of the, th one of the great opportunities I had was – educating medical students uh i think they were probably second or third year medical students on a ward round or a ward rotation where they were in they were doing a block that would be called the block of psychiatry okay like this this introduces them to basic psychiatry this helps them to decide whether they want to specialize when they're done and also obviously as a doctor you've got to have clinical experience in in in, in multiple forms of disease and that includes psychiatric diseases so this block of, of of students they were a little younger than me and uh they were they were med med students and um i my job was to teach them psychology right which there's a difference psychiatry um is uh similar to psychology but psychology spends more time on the on the mental side of the thinking uh, on the on 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 the motivation behind things, um, less side on um, unless you're becoming a clinical psychologist, it's less time spent on things like pathology and the chemical relationships between things. You you get to touch on those things, but you're really the the difference is a psychiatrist needs to know about the meds, the contraindications, the latest meds that the pharma companies are pushing as they come and they bring you know the gifts and the sandwiches and used to be the resort trips uh, to the psychiatrist. But that's one of the big differences. So on this ward round, my job was to teach them what a psychologist would do um, as part of a team of people that works on a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do something different for, the, for these folks. I wanted them to actually learn empathy for patients because that's obviously lacking. You can see how that's played out now. Like these doctors have zero empathy for adverse reactions to death from vaccines, to family stories, to tragedies that are taking place. They're dead to it. So I wanted to make sure that that I could have, have an opportunity with these med students where I would get them to feel 
what it's like to have a psychological issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what I did is I set up a little experiment where I asked for a volunteer and, and I, the guy, this cool, this cool guy volunteers and he's a extrovert and quite comfortable with himself. And, um, he didn't know what he was volunteering for, but what I did is I set him up and, and, uh, I said to him, okay, so what we're going to be doing is we are, I'm sending you outside and you're going to sit on a bench outside and, we're going to recreate a ward round and we're going to talk about you without you here. And I'm going to learn as much as I can about you for like the next 10 minutes. And then when I come back, I'll have some questions for you. And that's what I did. I sat him outside. And then as soon as he was out of earshot with the door closed, I whispered to the group, we're going to be talking about anything else except for him. I'm not, I don't know anything about him. I've seen him around. Seems like a friendly guy but he thinks we're talking about him. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is the first layer that is he's going to start feeling insecure. Because no matter how confident somebody is, the minute you don't have control of the conversations about you, you're going to have questions. And if those conversations feel at all that some people can shit talk about you um, and you have some insecurities, that's when it's going to start coming out. Just even sitting there, imagining that people are talking about you. So 10 minutes later, after talking about everything except for this guy, he comes back in and he sits there. And I said, okay, so I learned a lot about you. But I said, I'm going to get straight to the point because this is the thing that I'm the most curious about. Your group told me that there seems to be these bonds between everybody, but you don't fit in. I mean, total bullshit. Nobody had said that to me. Okay. Yeah. And, and I said, why is that? I didn't ask him if it's true. Right. I didn't ask him why they he, think. He declared like, the statement. Declared, declarative statement. And then I put him on the spot and I said, explain why this is. Why don't you fit in? And then he did. He started building my case for me. He started stuttering. You could literally see the physiological changes, which yeah. I'd primed the group to start watching for. So now you've got a, a group of people. I don't even remember how many students there were. Maybe let's say there were 20. You know, they're all facing him now. Complete silence except for my questions. And, and 20 other human beings, 19 other human beings staring at you while you fumble through trying to explain. You joined the class late. You came from another university. And literally within seconds, this guy was sweating profusely. His mouth had gone dry and he was stuttering over his words. Wow. And that's when I had to pull the plug. I actually wanted to make it worse. I was going to go on. In my own mind, I was going to drill him for like five minutes and break him. Okay. Well, but this is similar to what an interrogator will do to somebody. If, yes. you're, if you're suspected of a crime, we're coming for questioning. That's exactly what they do is they will falsify questions as if they have an assumption of an answer and ask you pertaining that it's true. Sure. And so by putting him on that spot, what I was able to reproduce is an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. I was able to physiologically give him really extreme anxiety. 
the the type of the type of anxiety that everybody fears with public speaking or some form of social embarrassment or some form of panic attack, I was able to bring that on in a in a cascading physiological condition for him, and then call it quits, and then have to debrief him. But that's all it took. Um, the idea of 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 basically being judged uh-huh. and then um, being accused of something. And then basically having to justify your actions. Now, if you think about that, if you think about that, that's so easy. When you think about doing that for decades to people, when you think about we didn't go into this pandemic in a way where suddenly people wouldn't speak up about the vaccine or about people getting fired. They weren't speaking up about being discriminated about work. They weren't being. They weren't. They weren't speaking up uh, about about um, equity trainings. They weren't speaking about uh, about um, all of a sudden that that their coworkers who were less qualified than them were being given pos- positions that they had been waiting for, and and had worked really hard for. And then and then the, they weren't allowed to speak up with it. The the delete culture and the cancel culture and the fear around stuff was prevalent, as you know, before the pandemic yeah. as part of the lead up. And then there was the, the 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 couple of things that I want to add to this in, in terms of you know, mass mass psychosis or um, or the idea that you can create this amount of um, bystander apathy and fear. Um, they use some really sophisticated tools. For example, like um, I was living in New York City just as the pandemic started, and we went through a time where somebody and I don't know, I don't think anybody bothered to find out or investigate it, but someone was buying millions of dollars worth of fireworks. I don't know if you remember that. They no. were they were buying up fireworks and they were spreading these fireworks that were like what are the big ones like M4s or something like they're yeah. huge yeah they were they were dis- distributing that a truck got stopped in a state somewhere and it, it was a massive truck where somebody was driving towards a city where this was going to get dispersed for free and um, it was being done all around the country while the protests were taking place mm. so you would have these massive booms that were keeping people up at night. Um, I saw people scurrying on the rooftops, setting them off in, in New York City. And if you think about if you think about what that's going to do, you're going to disrupt sleep. You're going to put people on edge where if they're not even aware, they've been woken up a few times in the night with loud explosions. I mean, we know that these are war techniques. Right. We know. I mean, for, for example, if you if you're clearing a building and you're trying to clear a room, why do you use a flashbang? Yeah. You. I mean. You're you're di- you're disrupting a cycle, um, and you're creating an inherent fear, and it's the fear of the unknown, and it starts reaching what's known as generalized anxiety disorder, where you have a latent anxiety that is non-specific, and the weirdest thing about that is that actually starts matching COVID symptoms. Hmm. Okay, over time you're going to start having the same feelings as panic attacks. But they're not full-blown panic attacks. But you'll start feeling a heaviness in your chest. It creates nausea. It creates avoidance. It creates headaches, and it creates pain in the body that's not explainable. Interesting. So even the techniques that were used can land up creating disease or the symptoms of disease in warfare. Hmm. And then you declare a pandemic, and then you've already got sick people. <laughs> Who don't even understand why they're feeling like they need to go to the ER. So it's more psychosomatic than anything. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. But it's it's psychosomatic in the in, in terms of the fact that it's a real condition and that yeah. the physiology is measurable. And it, you know, if somebody is uh, bending over with excruciating abdominal pain, uh, they're not faking it. Um, but it's it, it's psychosomatic. Uh, uh, so, 
and it is um you can you can you can manifest that in someone you can cause that i mean ultimately people are way too easy with throwing around the term gaslighting but this is a form of gaslighting but gaslighting has a very specific end goal gaslighting is to get someone to uh, to um uh to uh, have doubt over their own sanity or their own ability to read uh, uh reality that's uh, gaslighting now means all kinds of stuff it's just been diluted right. which i hate I, I hate i hate it when great things great individual uh, do you know where do you, do you happen to know the origin of gaslighting in no tell of, me comes from a play that became a movie not sure of the year, but, but it's old. Like I want to say maybe even like 1930s, 1940s. Um, and it was basically became a movie where the husband uh, takes a, a gaslight and, and he, fit, he, he, he messes with the, with a, with a, a toggle switch on it so that the light would flicker um, in their house. And then he pretended the wife would say that flickering is driving me nuts. And then he'd say the light's not flickering love and he would pretend that it that that it was her that something was happening to her oh we should talk to the doctor about this Hmm. are you seeing that light flicker that light's perfect so it's used as an example that over time that form of abuse gets to the point where the person can't tread on their own ground because nothing feels certain for them because they're doubting their own ability to read a situation Wow. That's a ter- and that's a that's a profound term and that that we don't use gaslighting like that. Uh, it's 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 very diluted at the moment, but it really is a, a purposeful end game of warfare, yeah. psychological warfare that 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 literally the person uh, is just at the at the depths of self doubt, you know, hmm. a complete shattering of of one's own confidence of of easy determinable uh, appraisals. It's it, it, it's interesting too because. There's this other variation or aspect of it to where they they don't question the reality. They see it happen. They let it bother them. And yet they're silent because they accept it within the reality. And they have all those anxiety effects. They have all those internal effects because the dialogue now is gaslighting themselves internally. And I think that that's a lot what's going on today is that people notice and see something that's wrong. But yet they're afraid to speak up. They're afraid to get ridiculed or criticized or demeaned or canceled or whatever it might be. And they watch this. They go into work and they see these people and and they understand that there's something wrong. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, whoever they might be. And internally, they question their own reality. Internally, they, they, they don't know what's real because of this psychological gaslighting of the self. And this is what this is what we're living for. The living through, and the 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 class of people that are the most pro pandemic, the most pro lockdown, the most pro masking, the most pro vaccine, the most pro this won't end until the authorities look after us are the most gaslit. Mm. And the worst part about it, in terms of the damage that's coming to them, they don't know yet, right? And and it's going to perpetuate. And to to truly um, master gaslighting. You don't ever have to do the reveal. Yeah. Right. It gets to the point, like you've just said, where they are living through a feeling of not will- being willing to do anything 
because they could be wrong. And there's another very easy social experiment that that's very easy to conduct um, that that does this really well. It's it's a social cohesion experiment where basically what they do is they show people on a screen lines of different lengths, right? And in a group setting, they have to say that A and B are equal. A is longer than B, and this one B is shorter than A. And basically, the, the the everyone in the room is in the is in the experiment, and they're all in on the act except for one participant. And you don't start off with just being wrong right away. You build the cohesion; everybody's on the same page, and then you start giving incorrect answers in cohesion. And then eventually, the person will agree that the lines are. And they won't speak up. Right. They won't say what the fuck just happened, like. <laughs> That's not true. They just look around and everyone's getting the, the answer correct. And they're too scared to be the wrong one out. And it wow. takes an incredibly special person. It's, it's, it's a tiny percentage of the world that is doing what you're doing or what I'm doing or the people that we associate with or the people that follow us. It's a tiny, tiny percentage of the world. And it needs to be like that. That's the weird part about it. If you think about who we are as social animals, mm-hmm. like – a community of animals does not get to th- live or survive or thrive if it's not a herd. Right. There has never been uh, a population that is sizable that doesn't act like a herd. <laughs> That's what you need. You ca- I mean, you don't go to you don't go to, into Africa on a safari and see uh, wildebeest uh, uh, or buffalo um, roaming the plains and in, in, in groups where there's five of them. There's five thousand. And, and they're all in sync and, and, and there's protection in that and they move and they stampede. And when there is somebody that's on the fringe, it's generally that they've been pushed out or they're old or they're sick or that there's been a problem with the alpha. Hmm. Like if you challenge the alpha, you get fucked to the, to the, to the fringe and then you die. So as a clinical psychologist, I, I want to bring this up because you just lit a light in my, my head. John Calhoun's mouse utopia experiment. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, with the drugs, with the well, with the, the food. They get, he gave them an infinite food supply, and they just started reproducing, 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 until they started ignoring the food and then eating themselves. It resorted to cannibalism and ended up killing them. Talk a little well, bit about that because human beings. I don't know. I don't know if I'm thinking about the right experiment. I'd have to check because there's a couple of mouse. There's a couple of rodent experiments that basically try and recreate urban environments. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like that's one of them. And is this experiment where basically abundance is given? And so it's social welfare. It it was testing the social welfare programs. So it basically created a mouse utopia. So it started with like um, two different um, types of mouse mice. They gave them an abundance of food, plenty of space. And they looked good. They reproduced. They were all healthy. And they just kept on having children and kept on having children. till eventually the population became unsustainable. Even right. though they had an abundance of food, they yeah. resorted to warfare. They started killing yeah. each other. Yeah. They turned on each other. The yeah. psychological diseases, hormonal imbalances started occurring. And, and I, I like this experiment because what you were just talking about there, when we, when we come from the Neanderthal or Desinovian lineage these were small tribes these weren't millions or hundreds of thousands thousands these were probably tribal um tribal places of less than a hundred people yes of which the males were obviously the dominant 
aspect, and some and some of them were females, where the, you had this heritage, right? They had both aspects of this. But yet, you would have little cliques or little clans within the tribe, usually of about 5 to 15 people. And the hunting parties were always no more than 5 people. Yep. Right. Talk a little bit about this. Yeah. So, so you're 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 completely correct, and and your experiment is amazing because Neanderthals traditionally found themselves for whatever reason when the when the world split up, or um, however you want to, however one somebody wants to frame the idea that there are these um, you know three main genetic groups of human beings, and the Neanderthals um, they got lucky. They they found themselves, uh, or they chose to be uh, as their tribe. Uh, and I think at, a, at any at the biggest number that they ever were, that's through modeling, has shown that there were like only fifteen or twenty thousand of them. Mm. And what what they were is that they were in um, really fertile valleys, and that's why the word Neanderthal is not a descriptor of the character. I mean, we use it now to think about a cave person and a, a knuckle dragger, but really, what you're describing is just one of the first regions where the where the bones were found. And, je- and when you find Neanderthal uh, uh, families or, or, um, or individuals, you're finding them in very, very fertile land. They were extremely energy efficient and they had an abundance. Your, your experiment is a perfect segue mm-hmm. into imagining a tribe of people that the only food they ate was wo- woolly mammoth. They didn't chase bunnies. Fatty meat. They, were, they, for, they went off to meat. They learned how to. They learned how to even uh, cure that meat. Uh, they learned how to preserve meat. They also um, uh, learned very quickly that the cave systems. Um, they they would dive. They they everyone just thinks about them as as living in caves, but caves are connected by a water. So these were these were also um, extremely good uh, divers. Um, things like mammalian diving reflex in terms of the fact that you can survive uh, for up to 40 minutes without oxygen circulating around your body if you've hit cold water first. So we have these really interesting primitive um, uh, uh, structures uh, where we we basically um, are, um, uh, you know, there was this group of people that ultimately you can really think about it as as the Garden of Eden. You can think about it as paradise. You can think about the fact that if you are a small tribe and that you are growing and that your population um, had an interesting sort of dynamic to it where your, your, your ebb and flow of life was the birth cycle and you were, you were procreating, but you weren't procreating in a way that didn't take in natural uh, threat or diseases. You know, if you're in a cave, and this is where coronavirus actually, um, a really interesting part about bats and about extracting toxins from bats is population control. This will take us into the dark side of this conversation. Um, bats are purposefully chosen to extract toxins from and create bioweapons because bats are the controller of populations of caves. Mm. It's the bats that are going to determine all of that life cycle, including the human beings that are sharing the cave with the bat. The ebb and flow of viruses, quote unquote viruses, and viruses for me have taken on a complete new meaning uh, during this pandemic. I sort of now just sit back and I watch those slug it out in terms of uh, virus believers and virus deniers. And I go, you're both wrong, because if you have a look at the at the root of the word virus, um, it came from the word venom. And Mm. so all virus is, is it's like a stem cell of toxins. 
It is a bundle of it is a it's a cocktail of toxins that has a starter pack that allows it to replicate in other microbes. That's all a virus is. It is a, it is it's not one thing. It's not like like the little drawings that you see where basically like the first time I ever saw a virus at school, it looked like a little spacecraft with legs and it looked like it land on the moon. A virus doesn't look like that at all. It basically is a cluster of a whole bunch of really, really lethal toxins and bacteria that live amongst it. It's a living system. Yeah. It's a little ball, a living system that has the ability to get inside another microbe and then exploit that microbe where that microbe splits becomes two and takes the toxin and and replicates the toxin hmm. does that make sense in terms yeah. of uh, the, the, ex, the exploit is just like a computer you know you're getting inside the machine and then the machine is making more of itself um and so you know i i think that the the the, the understanding of of um of what we're talking about in terms of population dynamics is that uh, neanderthals never had a reason to do their own form of population control. They didn't need to cull from within. The ebb and flow of their own cycles, extreme winters, you know, you would have die off and then you would have uh, re rebirth, you would have you would have great seasons, you know, sort of from the Bible, you know, seven fat years, seven thin years, there would be the natural cycles. The difference between modern day humans uh, and Neanderthals uh, is industry and agriculture. Hmm. It, it, it is the desire to store food to take more than you need, it's it it is it starts um, it starts needing slavery. It starts needing animal uh, dominating over animals because your your energy your system is so inefficient that you have to work really hard and you have to exploit labor to keep the system going. Otherwise, it would collapse. Hmm. But the side effect of that is that you can have more control over the population and you can overpopulate. And then another population dynamic that 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 uh, we've done to ourselves is that in your experiment you need those um, those rats to be in a confined space so that they run out of space. And so we've been told a fat lie that the world is overpopulated and it's because there's too many people, but that's not true. It's because we're caged. Hmm. I, I spent three almost. Uh, just under three years on a motorcycle with a sidecar traveling through the u.s working on my doctorate and working on small fa uh, family farms the bulk of the united states is land yeah <laughs> with nothing on it <laughs> and if you go to most countries in the world what you'll find is forced accumulation of people in boxes interesting where if you let them spread out no problem. Hmm. And the more you spread them out, the more you would have natural cycles. A town would get hit by a tornado and be wiped out. You would have you would have you would have natural population control rather than what's taking place now, which is those that think that they're in charge of us, those that think they are our parents, right? Bill Gates thinks he's your daddy. <laughs> I mean, that's that that's that's ultimately the role that he's taken on. Uh people like himself. Um they, uh, um, uh, Schwab, um, these people have taken on these really perverse psychodramas, the very fraudulent psychodramas of these um, non-alpha males that find themselves in these positions where they, through manipulation and trickery and their own desire for, for purposeful control, they believe that they're running a big safari park. 
and that 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 we they've run out of space and that they're taking on this moral justifiable in their own minds ethical human culling for the rest of us they are they're looking at the rat box and they're going shit's going bad and we're not giving them a bigger rat cage so we need to start killing now i agree with everything that you just said there and when people start to look at it in this perspective, taking that social experiment done on the mouse utopia, understanding our, our ancestral lineage, and Neanderthal and Desinovian, and, and then put it in that perspective, you're absolutely right. This planet is absolutely not overpopulated. We're, we're overconcentrated within boxes around the world. And what happens is, is those boxes become full of shit. The shit begins to spew out and they say, well, it's global warming. We're, we're damaging the environment. Look at this. This is horrible. People can't live with this. Violence and crime increase just as the mice started attacking and killing each other in the same accord. Um, and we have, we have the, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We have plenty of stuff for everybody. Let's just help people. And, and the socialists, the communists, they, they don't understand this perspective because what they want is they want more boxes. They want more boxes and they want to be the labor force within the boxes. Uh, and they want to control that labor force, but that always gets centralized. Where in, in a capitalistic society is they just continuously give you what you want, but unfortunately we don't have capitalism anymore. We have crony capitalism to where they produce to stimulate, to draw out an agenda. And, and this is where things have been moving. And it's... When you look at this in this in, in hindsight now, these globalists, these elitists, when they're they're looking at society right now, do, do you think that they just came to the point and said, shit, we screwed up? Like, we, we allowed the cities to get too big. We allowed the people to become too violent. Oh, we didn't take our own advice. We got too greedy. We just allowed it. So now let's just no. call the population. Or do you think that there are literally psychopathic, unemotional, unempathetic, beings that really just don't give a shit they have everything that they need technologically wealth wise and they're ready to just go have their vacation in the sunshine and they want everybody gone i, I you know I, I think it comes down i think it comes down to the type of person that we we think that everyone is you know on some we, we look at a continuum and we never get to the like i love that that your show is about fringe because we never really most people are uncomfortable exploring the very ends of a, of a, of a, of a, a continuum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've got a one and a half year old son and a bee flew into the, into, um, uh, into our apartment the other day. And, um, my, that's the first time that my son has seen a bee inside in an enclosed space as an event, like an, as an, as a happening, as an event. Yeah. And, and, and I noticed it come, coming in up through a window and then, he was with me and, and I was holding him. And then it became this whole story, this, 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 uh, this hero's journey where he tracked the bee with me and the bee went to the other side. And then my two dogs, Shadow and Skippy, were trying to eat the bee. Um, you know. Oh, coming back up now. So it should be coming back up now. All right. We are back up and we are streaming. Looks like we are good. All right. Sorry about that, guys. And that is our momentary lapse of reason that occurs uh, occasionally when we do this show because of Windows 11. But we are back. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. You were <laughs> so, talking no, about the so, story. So, yeah. So, so just watching him see this, this, this drama. But the thing that I didn't do on purpose 
was, you know, that my goal in that was that I got the the, the dogs away and I gently grabbed the bee in a, in a sock. And, and then I walked back to the original window and I opened the window and I freed the bee. Mm. Right. And, and so my son is going to learn that you don't have to kill everything to control the situation. Yeah. That you don't have to create killings and kill boxes and depopulations and, um, you know, also the, the inherent fear that people have of the, you know, some sort of dangers that makes them turn on that psychopathic energy of destruction, right? Of Thanos, of, of, of the Greek god Thanatos, you know, a, th- a thanatic impulse of uh, this. This can only work out if death comes to, you know, the intruder, right? Mm-hmm. And so my son, my son got to see that there's other ways to solve a problem. And my son got to see that there's that, 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 that role modeling is something that he has now a choice and that if his personality fits with that, that he can make the choice to find problem solving that is, uh, that has compassion, empathy, um, and that creatures get to, 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 to continue on living when it's possible. When, when it comes to a psychopath, when it comes to somebody like Bill Gates, when it comes to a Schwab, um, or, um, a Martin Rothblatt, um, what these people are looking at is the world to them from the earliest age just feels like a board game. Hmm. They don't, they don't have, um, they don't have the same physiological and emotional and cognitive responses that you and I would do or other people in terms of something sentimental about whether it's a person or about a situation or about a loved one, their ability to objectify is not something that they can turn on or turn off or that you and I can become. That is who they are. They, they see the world as objects. And once you see the world as objects, everything, including themselves, is meaningless. Hmm. It's, just, it's just a game. And that's why they're so successful at the game of life because they don't have, they don't have to think about consequences, even their own demise. I mean, if you think about them, what we, we call cowardly acts, right? If you think about mass shooters, if you think about, you know, um, Stephen Paddock in Vegas, you know, he, like most of them, he puts a gun in his mouth, he pulls the trigger. If you think about Hitler, pulls the trigger. Their end point for them so, ends with the same desire to win the game. They get to control even the end. They'll, they'll drink the cyanide pull. They'll, they'll jump off the cliff. Whatever it is, it's nobody else controlling that board. They don't have even sentimentality to themselves. You know, it, it, it's, the, it's the one thing that could explain that if Jeffrey Epstein didn't really Epstein himself, you should understand it from a psychopath's point of view. Hmm. That at that point, the game is only controllable by his own demise under his own hands. Otherwise, he loses. Right? How, how it, do you think they got that way? They're born like that. Hmm. There's 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 an uncomfortable part about about why we we are remain underprepared to deal with you know a world like we're seeing now where you can have a genocide under everyone's nose is we there isn't really a lot of spaces where people go and learn about psychopaths and and like for example you have you have a um your your two hemispheres of your brain your left and right yeah um they, they need a bridge. They need to be able to communicate to each other. And that bridge is something called the corpus callosum. And it's just a, a very thin line of cabling of fat and electrical conductivity. And it, and, it con- and it allows the two hemispheres to integrate. Okay. A psychopath has a inherently from birth 
thinner corpus callosum. That's nothing that they could have done to themselves. That's nothing that 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 happened at 10 years old. They literally have a thinner corpus callosum from birth, meaning they're not integrating the world the same way as we are. Very much like a chameleon. A chameleon has a split brain. And so it becomes an ultra predator. It can look to the left. It can look to the right. It can look backwards. And the, the, the similarity with predators is focus, is that when when they need to take singularity of a situation, that's when those sparks of that corpus callosum will be inherently the most integrated that they are at that moment. It's not sustainable because it's so thin. Right. Um, but at that moment, they are hyper-focused on end goal. There's nothing stopping them. And there's a fixation, which ultimately anybody that hunts or any martial artist should know that that's what that's what determines whether you're going home with food or not or the kill shot or the ability to see it through it's can you withstand the impatience of that next 5 minutes of waiting for the right shot you know how determined are you you know to get that squirrel you know how alpha are you in terms of your pursuit skippy my little one uh, the little dog um, when we rescued her, I was out with her. And one of the first times she was off leash with me, she chased a squirrel and went straight up the tree. I'd never had a dog that climbs trees. Literally. I mean, you hear about cats that climb trees, but she is so alpha for her and for her being and for her size that the end goal for her on a hunt excludes the possibility of just staying on the ground. Right. She, she'll go airborne if necessary. And, and so from a hunting perspective, from a predatory standpoint, being fixated on the end goal makes somebody a winner. Now, Bill Gates is really interesting because, and I've been focusing on him a lot lately, not that he's the only perpetrator of this, but in terms of a, a major driver of, of the world that we're living in, um, he has a absolute deepest fixated OCD-like obsession with depopulating the planet. Now, I can make some uh, uh, assumptions until he's sitting on a sofa chatting to me about it, which I would never per- do because I don't think I could. I don't think I could trust myself in being a r- in a room with him. Can't restrain right? yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know that I that Bill Gates would ever want to be in a room with me with a closed door. Um, if 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 we, if I got an opportunity, though, and I was supposed to be that neutral psychologist that could listen to him, my my assumption is that. Having growing up in his world, in this objectified world, in a board game, a highly successful, very, very driven uh, father, very, very much the the sort of stoic figure that a lot of these mass killers have, a sort of the absent absent father that's actually present, um, who's fixated on on death and depopulation. I mean, he was involved with Planned Parenthood. Uh, uh, clearly there's some eugenic lines in terms of, uh, uh, you know, really a class-based system of who gets to live and who gets to die to the point that I think that even they can justify that as they depopulate, I think that they've chosen to do it differently for different continents. Like Bill Gates didn't necessarily introduce a sterilization program to the U.S. Um, I think that he might in his own he- uh, in his own uh, mind think that that's only for a certain race or a class of people and that he would do that to Africa and he would do that to African-Americans here and he would maybe do that to Hispanics. But in his own mind, I believe that he's got a class system just like like running a board 
right. and having options, right? Oh, your piece can move three over here, or you can go backwards with the three, but the roll of the dice is the same. I think he's very methodical, but I think that it's very purposeful based on his background. And I think that it's deeply disturbing that I don't think anybody besides his inner circle knows how powerful that infatuation is. You see it on his, on his ex-wife's face every time there's an interview where there is an absolute discomfort and I would imagine that the person that he spends, like, I don't know her name, but once a year he meets up with a college person or some, some woman that he was very close to. I'd imagine that in his closest circle, she's been the person that has been the most behind uh, his desire. <laughs> I, 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 I think that, that there's somebody that always stokes the, the fire. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a person that, that, um, that, that is sort of the, the ultimate enabler. Like Adam Lanza's mom was that for Adam Lanza. Right. Like, Do you think it's a, a compensatory mechanism of so they lack this level of empathy or compassion, right? And so there's got to be a compensation mechanism going on to where when they do these certain things, they become hyper-focused on an agenda, and when they accomplish it, in a sense, they get this endorphin reward, and that, in a sense, compensates for the lack of empathy that they've had throughout their whole life, and this is their emotion. You're, 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 you're spot on, and that endorphin is actually really interesting because what they're really feeling is a, if, um, it's, 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 a, it's a rush that is like, like a drug, mm -hmm. except, except that the, 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 the physiology of it is they go from having a very low resting heart rate, uh, um, bradycardia, to normal. Hmm. So what they're really experiencing is what a runner is after with a runner's high. So your word endorphin is perfect, but it's not, it's not, it, does, it can't last longer than, than a second. And so ultimately the chase for them is always the desire to feel alive. It's not necessarily that it felt great. Like Bill, Bill Gates never seems happy. Right. Right. He always just seems like he needs the next big thing because he's not there yet, because he'll never get there because what he's really trying to do is feel alive. And he can't feel alive because it's death that he feels. Hmm. And that by extension, everybody has to feel that death with them. Interesting. And their physiology matches it. You can measure this stuff. You can, you can read it on their body language. You can see it. You can hear it in their words. I mean, one of the easiest giveaways for anybody should be that he, he is a father himself. And that when he, there's that one clip uh, that, that people play where basically uh, when he talks about how he takes the vaccine and they'll just be shooting it, shooting, shooting into yeah. the little children's arms. Like if you didn't know that that was Bill Gates and if you were watching some sort of Hollywood style fucking you know Hannibal Lecter shit like that would be a great scene of seeing a fucking psychopath and everybody would recognize it and they go like holy shit who's that fucker like that's perverse nobody talks like that about children right he's just like, shoot it shoot it shoot it into the well I mean you is this a sane human being is this is this a world leader is this somebody that owns all of our farms? Is this somebody that can walk into any company and tell them what to do? Is this somebody that your, you know, your Microsoft just crashed, but you're still making money from that? You know, ultimately, this, the other side to this is let's, let's, let's not only blame him. Everything in this universe, as a, as a, um, we're a living organism, and everything self-organizes. And feedback is the driver of self-organization. Mm -hmm. So Bill Gates' next move is 
a full algorithm, a human algorithm that we all run on, which is based also on the feedback that he was getting about whether he was on target with his desires or whether he was going to get stopped or whether there was embarrassment or shame or whether there was anybody that would um, that would make it uncomfortable enough for him to actually think about what he's doing or have to redirect his energy. Not that he would feel bad about it, but that his methods were not working would be a forced change. And the answer is no. Nobody, nobody in Bill's life has ever actually put him in his place. Hmm. Like he, he went through, you know, uh, a full investigation, uh, US government against Bill Gates. He came out fine. He yeah. got a slap on the wrist and he carried on doing what he's doing. And then, and then he's and now he's done this, and and he can go on TV and he can say all vaccines are shit, including these, and nobody goes. Well, you didn't say they were shit last year. He's never held accountable by anybody, right? And, and maybe that also comes about through the authoritative parent aspect in childhood. Is he goes through childhood and he's got two very high profile family members who are continuously busy on a regimented schedule in and out. They he was he was raised by nannies, never shown probably in, uh, from the time he was born. He was probably handed to a nanny and really never held by his mother very much. He lacked the compassion, the empathy. He lacked the physical touch. He lacked the the verbal uh appreciation of his being and this is why all he sees and feels is death is because he was never loved and he, he doesn't understand what it really means to be alive and even if he was completely loved even right. if it was an absent father and even if his mother was the most dodery he just can't feel it that's the genetic part that's the biological part that's the part that uh that that is the most disturbing for me because like all disorders and all diseases and all compromises that's a disability Right. Which sounds really weird because how are you saying that Bill Gates has a disability? <laughs> I mean, look at him in terms of net worth. Look at the power. You know, as a disabled guy, he's done really well. Well, they but, would look at he, it as not a disability, but in sense, something that makes them higher than humanity on the evolutionary charts. Do you remember the um, the Fox TV show Fringe? Never, never watched it, but uh, oh, tell me about it. Great show. So basically what happens is you have this uh, this one scientist named Arthur. He's kind of a, a government scientist involved. He's a polymath, but involved in MKUltra and trying to get kids to develop psychic abilities, telekinesis, telepathy, these types of things. Um, he ends up ripping a hole in the universe to a parallel dimension. And 20 years later, after everything's said and done, the hole begins leaking through. And various fringe-type events occur and start happening. Um, and there's these people. They, they're they like pale white people in suits and black hats, meant, meant to be like kind of the men in black, that observe all of these fringe events, and they do a few shows on them. What they end up finding out about these observers, they call them the observers, is they're time travelers from the future. And they, some, they say sometime around 2038, um, there was a genetic therapy developed which increased the intelligent capacity of the human brain. But since the volume never increased within our skull, it grew so large and overtook the emotional centers to where the emotions were basically thrown out and our intelligence capacity increased so they lacked empathy and emotion. And it's almost kind of like they, they think of them as that, that. They think of them as this higher predator because of this. 
Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just I mean that is an amazing opportunity to go. Um, that's exactly what they're doing through this vaccine program. Really, explain it. Because so, ob- from an observer point of view, if we are observers, mm-hmm. right, and we're watching a planet, what should be noticeable to most people that are, I don't want to put it into a, a camp of people that are vaccinated and unvaccinated. I'm going to put it into a camp of people where. For whatever reason, the spike protein has not taken over our brain. Right. Okay. Can be a vaccinated person, can be an unvaccinated person, can be somebody that had COVID, didn't have COVID, exposed 20 times. For whatever reason, it didn't work on us. Okay. Then you get to be, you get to then be an observer and you get to look at what's taking place. What everybody should notice is that the world currently is dulled down at the moment and that. Everybody should be, there should be a level, and I say should, and I'm just, I'm using that as a, as a, as a way of commenting on what, what is, what we've defined as normal reactions, right? There's no, there's no true marker on it. It's just over time, we are supposed to hear a story about, you know, I had a high school friend, he went off him and his wife, they got uh, um, vaccinated, uh, um, both of them around the same time. They're both now dead. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old. The, the guy was 50. His wife was probably around the same age, healthy. They're now both dead. There's three children involved. Hmm. Okay. Um, these are stories. Most people now know somebody in their circle where they could talk about an adverse reaction. They could talk about a horrible, something that happened because of quarantining, a suicide, uh, you know, fentanyl overdoses that are, you know, absurd. Camps of people in Chicago airport. There is such a world around us that should be so emotional for all of us. And yet, um, we're all dulled down. We're chasing balloons. Yeah, we're chasing balloons or we're just talking about, you know, superficial stuff or, you know, people are just going about their business. And especially people where this spike protein has gone in to their system. And this is the part that I know you know about in terms of uh, VMAT gene and in terms of monoamine uh, transmitters. What it's done is it's, it's a form of a tranquilizer. Yeah. It, it, it creates a downregulation of things like serotonin uh, and uh, GABA. And um, it's going to give you those dope. It's going to give you um, it's going to it's going to give you not a baseline of dopamine. Uh, which should sustain your task-driven activities. It's going to make you bounce, which right. means that there's these fixated journeys that people have. And if you're not a hunter anymore, and if you're not a video gamer, the interesting part about that is that fixated, that fixated feeling has to go somewhere. And that can be the scariest thing about this because it will get attached to a belief system. Mm. And if you're hearing radio advertising for vaccinated if you're hearing about people telling you um, all these horror stories and people that are unvaccinated are going to die in hospital and everything, their dopamine up and down has made them like hunters where they've taken on these personal missions where I'm looking at people in, the, in, the, in that crowd of people that will purposefully boast in their Twitter profile that they are, dis, uh, they are misinformation hunters, right? Or that, they're, they're, that they feel like they're disinformation warriors, can you hear the word choice is that ultimately those dopamine bounces have taken that hunting impulse that fixated, I will get the food and they've just turned it into extremism. 
Wow. And that goes back to that. So let's assume then that there is this environmental, this epigenetic aspect of, of bringing people to the sociopathic standpoint to where they are in this bouncing of this neurotransmitter, which brings about instability within their biochemistry to where they have various voids or black holes emotionally, socially in their, in their bodies. And they latch on to various ideologies. Now they are automatically prone to social influence and social engineering. And this is why we had is orange man, bad Donald Trump's a criminal. Then we have uh, I stand for Ukraine or social justice or, or, uh, you know, climate change or un, uh, you know, pro-vax or pro-abortion. I mean, pro-abortion is one of the most absurd shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, kill them all, kill all the children, doesn't matter, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And, and so we have the two aspects. We have the, the, the genetically derived or hereditary derived sociopathic people. And then we have the manipulated people who are manipulated through biochemistry, environmentally through biochemistry, through decades of psychological abuse that they become destabilized internally biochemically that makes them prone to latch on to these points of extremism and for everybody out there it's happening on both sides so here's the scariest part about it it can be anything it doesn't have to be any of these extreme topics. Those are easier because they're yeah. they're emotional triggers, and you you know they will divide our tribes of people. Well, but because we because we've lost our our our, our main form of drivers um, of survivalism, um, it's replaceable by anything. It's it, you know it's a craving for meaning, and you can see it in terms of uh, you know where um, a Super Bowl can happen, and then and then the riot cops have to come out, and cars are getting turned over over what. Over, really? And you yeah. can see it in terms of the fact that someone will go out and, you know, buy an expensive, you know, football jersey or they'll have their favorite player or, you know, but they don't actually give a shit about their own kids or what their kids are doing or they won't spend an hour just, you know, following up uh, on, on the safety of a new experimental product. They're just going to take someone's word for it. But ask them the score of the, you know, the game or, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a replacement that, that literally the parties that want to control. It, yeah. it can be anything. It, you can get somebody fixated. And, and I'll tell you the one that's about to come up, which I'm, I know you're well aware of. So I'm pointing out the obvious over here. They're going to get people fixated on UFOs. Yep. That's what they're going to do. And that's straight out of the 1950s. You know, they will stop the fixation on things like the Super Bowl and on Ukraine because it, it's it, as, prof- as profound as those distractions are right now. The ultimate big change of going onto a uh, uh, a one government US-based BlackRock cryptocurrency running the entire world, one system, one exchange, one social score, no borders, no countries, just a group of people called the capital that run everything is going to require a bigger distraction than anything that's happening now. And that is where people talk about things like uh, the Blue Project. Yeah, Project Blue because you need it. You, how else? How else are you going to get people to get that into a cohesive mass formation psychosis, where the thing they focused on with this dull down, apathetic, I'm a zombie. They need they need that 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 last piece of getting the herd through the through the tunnel into the new enclosure. So I want everybody out there in the audience to take this into perspective. One thing that I like to do is I like to build foundations for knowledge, for information. 
<clears throat> so when he says something profound like he just did, what I like to do is is show you kind of how he's absolutely right. Go through the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Noah Harari, Joe Biden, Congress, Senate, whoever the fuck they are. And remember every time when they're talking about the future, the future of the world, the future of the country, how the future's coming, the future's here. And then think about how you would social engineer a whole population through mass formation psychosis to, to accept this new future system that's being developed, a new future political system, financial system, and social system. Think about the psychological aspect of looking up in the sky and looking for aliens from another planet who are highly technologically advanced, who are flying to our planet to observe us because we're on the cusp of these massive discoveries of moving into the future. At the same time, you have these people behind the scenes, social engineering people that believe that we have to transform society for if we ever meet E.T., they're never going to want to come and communicate with us when we have a divided nation, a divided world, and not one world government, and we, we can't even figure out the healthcare problem. This is how they are going to manipulate all of society and engineer them into that doctrine of a one world government. Yeah, I, I, you just, for me, what you, what, what you were doing, like, I was thinking about, okay, so how do I make this, how do I break it down where it doesn't even sound so conspiratorial yeah. and, and big? Um, I, I mentioned to you that I worked on farms. Um, if you want to be, let's say, um, uh, vaccinating the, the, the herd of cattle, or if you need them to go through a dip, right, uh, a pest dip, right? I mean, and you have a discussion, your ranch hand, and, you know, your volunteers that might be there and your, your 10 employees if it's a small ranch. Like the night before that you're talking about the day, you know, what's going to happen the next day or, you know, a week before when you're going out and buying the products. You're not you're not meeting in secret under some form of, you know, dark, you know, like the, the cows shouldn't imagine that there's a plot. Right. But there are discussions and they're just deeply practical. There, there's not there's nothing there's nothing sinister um, from the perspective of if you've got a goal that this needs to take place and that this is the planning and this guy's going to arrive with a truck and he's going to be pulling up the fencing and, and this is where we're going to build a funnel this year. And remember last year, you know, we, we had a couple of calves that were injured. Let's make sure that we do it a little bit more in the center this year. You know, these are not, these are not dark, sinister plots. And so when you look at, 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 at World Economic Forum, if you look at World Summits, if you look at Singularity University, these are just people meeting that have a mutual agenda that ultimately we, the people, have given them permission to think that are in charge of us. And then they're going about their business. They, they're not, they're not, this is the thing why you can't trap them in some sort of like crime in real time. Because none of them think that they're criminal and none of them are doing it where it's like, of course, there's corrupt deals and someone's trying to slide 50 million here. And if you funnel this and if you blow up this oil, uh, if you blow up the pipeline, then that's going to create this. But ultimately, the agenda of all of them is no different than stupid corporations that meet about meetings that meet about meetings they are they are doing what what they've laid out like i i came across a document i think it might have been 20 years old or something from the un and it specifically talks about the world being overpopulated mm -hmm. and then it specifically talks about like the african problem and the way that this document says that the best way to fix africa is they don't call it sterilization they call it family planning right 
and that if they if they go out there and you've heard Bill Gates say this as well that if you can improve healthcare and contraception yeah. and you know then these moms won't feel like they need eight babies that don't make it to make the one but ultimately those discussions are happening with rational people that don't think that they're sinister but they're thinking this through that they're going why is she having eight babies and if we make sure that there is, uh, if we raise the economy and we create this uh, uh, um, this situation uh, where where uh, you know two of them will thrive, then she doesn't feel like she needs eight. But ultimately, the problem with that is the conversation is not being had with the mom, and the, that there's an assumption that that person doesn't want a big family. There's the assumption that that if they fix the problem, that that person would just choose to have two. Right. But what if they wanted to have eight? And then and then these people also, because this is the part that's the eugenics part about it, they then also will absolutely feel comfortable, not only country by country, but continent by continent and race by race, where they'll go, well, how do we then, uh, if we want to if we want to work on, on on a population problem in the U.S. We, we, we can we make, make some headway through family planning, but we've had that for a long time. So that's not really working out. So what if we just make the cost of living really high? Right? I mean, they just think these things through yeah. in that way we're describing that there's no sentimentality to it. There's no informed consent. And there is the idea, the arrogance is the problem here, that the arrogance that the subservient human doesn't get to engage in this conversation, that they are our slave owners or our bosses and that they put themselves in there. And here's the really messed up part about it. Our whole system is built to put them in charge. Right. So, so we all expect them to be accountable and turn themselves in. But ultimately, they would turn around and say, well, we haven't been doing any of this in secret. Like we, you know, how many people from every country in the world just attended uh, WEF? Right. Like, I mean, they, they showed up. They showed up as a big conference, as a thing to learn about and, and, and learn the script and what PR companies are going to be doing this and how it's going to be easier for them. Like, they're not hiding any of this. The, 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 the biggest issue for me is that I think that what we've got to really look at uh, is that we as human beings have to decide that this system of hierarchy that's been a sense of a permit, a royalty-based per permit, right. it needs to stop. Like ultimately, humanity has never had an opportunity to go back to some form of truly an understanding that everybody's a stakeholder. Hmm. And that ultimately, the person that goes to vote for you doesn't get to think about the problem. By the time they go into Congress or the Senate and to write laws and to, and to say how much money is going somewhere, they shouldn't be the people that are making the decisions or having the discussions. They are just representation of small blocks of people that should have already decided. Right. That, that was and originally the minute, what the founders intended. Exactly. Yeah. And the minute that you're blowing up a pipeline and that you're not informing the people, you've, you, you've, 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 turned, you've turned your back on that principle right. of safety and ethics and stakeholders. But it, it also goes back to this one point. <clears throat> so I've studied uh, the esoteric mysteries, occultism, for well over two decades. And there, there's one thing in the studies that you learn is that 
these people that are very high up there are cultists. These, what we can either call white magicians or dark magicians, good or bad, either or. They all think the same thing. Is that there's three evolutionary branches of humanity. There is what they call the low man. The low man is what you were describing earlier. They go to football games. They, they get all proud and happy when their team wins. But when the team loses, they're emotional. And they fight and they get angry. They revo- resort to very, very instinctual emotion, emotional positions. Even with the happiness, it's very, very emotional and, and, and primal. Then you have the middleman. The middleman has a higher, uh, a higher level of intelligence. They're typically educated, right? But they have a very, very low emotional intelligence. So they still have this primal, instinctual drive in the sense what brings about their emotional center, even though they have a levels of logic and rationalism developed within their life. But then you have this upper man. And this upper man is twofold in these communities. There's one, it's devoid. They've rose above the emotional centers. And they, they go from a complete stoic or logical, rational perspective on everything. This would be your Bill Gates, psycho, sociopathic. Or they, they learn to be more, I guess, stoic in their emotional perspective where they rationalize even the most terrifying evil. And they believe that they are in a higher position because of that rationalization, because of that, their ability to see things from that 40,000-foot view. Yeah, you're, you're right, and you, you, you remind me of the term that the Nazis used in terms of Ubermensch, you know, the Superman. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that ultimately, I think that the cruelty here is I was thinking about, like, okay, so if some guy was listening to us and he's really into his team and it's insulting to think about, like, how, you know, um, he gets riled up about his team and then he's prepared to fight for it and whatever. But I think what I'm trying to say with that and what I think what, what you're saying as well is that ultimately that that, that position has not necessarily been chosen by that person. That they, they 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 find themselves in that situation. It's a sort. It's a form of grooming, that generational yep. grooming, over and over. And that they've really never experienced. Uh, they've never experienced another side where they can get excited about other things. And and ultimately, the worst things get some for somebody in their job, and the the least control they have, they're going to um, they're going to substitute. It's sublimation. They're going to they're going to substitute it somewhere else. And and you're gonna you're gonna see that that. Um, that that sense of um, of uh, of joy, or that sense of getting behind the hunting team, uh, the gladiators fighting in the in the in the Colosseum. You know, the the idea of it is that the 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 le- the less you can control in your world, the easier it is to replace it with something artificial. But the 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 cruelty in it is that the person doesn't get the experience. Like somebody might like not even have the time to go out fishing anymore. Like the rush. The rush has been taken away from them and their mundane lives and their lives that are like um, overly complicated and overly expensive. And, and then, of course, it becomes generational because then that same father or that same mom is not able to do the family stuff with them. Everything is rushed. Um, then, then instead of being outside, everything's indoors. You know, it went from, you know, if you think about what they've done to us and using your, um, your model of, um, of, of the rack box, um, malls aren't a thing anymore. So we went from from even having an environment of um, outdoor, uh, you know, most kids that grew up from other generations running in the fields, playing, you know, stickball in the streets, switching on the fire hydrant when it's hot, you know, going whatever it is, even in an urban city, you're outdoors. Then everything started becoming indoors in terms of things like malls, right? Now they took away the malls Hmm. and kids are in their bedrooms. 
So the box, the kill box is getting smaller and smaller. Wow. Whoa. Right? To the point that it becomes so small that you then live in the metaverse, in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. Yeah, there it is. You go, you channel it smaller and smaller. Now, that metaverse, sadly, when you talk about the, the sort of, we're talking about this psychopathic sociopathic brain, um, you have your predatory, your predatory instincts and you have your, your predators that can control it. But I think the most dangerous form of psychopathy uh, is apathy. Hmm. I think that a very dangerous form of it is getting to the point where you watch bad stuff happen and it's your inaction that's the action. Right. Right? Like somebody's getting raped in another room at a party and you, you don't give a shit about it and you don't do anything about it. That, that, that's, that, that's more psychopathic than the, the rapist. Yeah. Like you, you're, 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 able, you're able to change the world for somebody and you've chosen not to get involved. Now, that to me is also where the psychopath, the actual rapist is probably more driven by biology in, uh, in ape, innate biology than the person standing there with a slight discomfort and making a choice about not going to do something about it. Wow. So, so, so I think that that's a really profound form of not inherited psychop- psychop- psych- psychopathic behavior, but trained. Uh, and, 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 and sort of becoming dehumanized through this world where your natural inkling would be to go and stop some bad stuff happening or get involved or speaking up. Um, I listened to uh, you know, something on the, on the, in, the, in the car a couple of hours ago where basically somebody was being interviewed from a university, from John Hopkins, and, um, and, and the questions were like, why aren't you speaking up if, you know, around you know, these students having to be you know, forced into taking this, uh, this, this um, gene therapy? Right. And, and the answer is too complicated for that person to even answer because they would have to do what you said at the beginning of the show, which is 40 years, 40 years of programming, sir. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, I've been programmed. Like, this is the civilian form of MK Ultra. Like, we are, we are all fighting back against a massively systemically uh, controlled system that, that ultimately is so well thought out that, that I know you've covered this before, and I'm, I'm covering it briefly here, that the exploit to get this population dulled down using this chemical compliant tool, the spike protein, at this time, required open nicotinic receptors. And we've spoken a little bit about nicotine. I know that you've covered that before. But there are countries in the world, South Africa being one of them, they banned cigarettes <laughs> during the pandemic. Like somebody sat around somewhere and was told, hey, a good thing to do during this time to improve people's health. And, and you saw it in this country as well, where they started going after nicotine and they went yeah. after menthol. And somebody is just following the orders of this is a good time to make people more healthy. But somebody is not being told the real agenda to it is the control tool we're using to funnel the cattle through the dip this week. Well, it also sounds like a control group in a social experiment. Yeah. Right. And so somebody doesn't know that their real reason for blocking the nicotine is that the the compliance substance wouldn't work. So it's that this information, by the time somebody is at the end point of making the decisions and policy, if they are lower down and your chain that you talk about, if they're a middle person, right, on that chain, 
if they're not playing the role of super uh, of uber mensch, uh, eugenic creator, controller, depopulator, uh, leader of the populace, by the the longer they are in that chain, the less likely they are to know why something's occurring. Right. Wow. Now, there's one. There's another aspect to this that that I don't know that much about, but I think is relevant to this conversation. And this is where my hope comes from. In situations where you have uh, forms of this sort of animal dominance, there is a subset um, that is sort of like a substitute alpha. And and I like to think about myself and I like to think about somebody like you as a, ch- a person who can choose alpha. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a really interesting part about this because from the little that I know about it is that generally alphas that are that have the potential of basically uh replacing the tyrant alpha or the the alpha that's making really bad choices that the herd's gonna the herd's gonna eventually die um there there has to be that they've gone through a pecking order of some form of bullying some form of exchange where because they're not psychopathic they've made the choice to just be under the radar until needed Sort of like sleeper cells, right? You, you, and, you, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah, go no. Ahead. What's your react? What's your reaction to that? So, have you ever heard of a sigma? No. Okay, so there's this new term out there. Instead of alpha, there's a new one that they call the sigma male. And the sigma male is kind of these 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 guys that are um, more well rounded than a typical alpha. Right, your typical alpha. If you say alpha, people tend to think of the captain of the football team, the jock, yeah, the yeah, the traditional yeah. leader that takes orders when orders are given, hands them out, and can lead people to a point of victory. Whereas these sigmas are the outliers. These are the people that lead from the side who are keeping the alphas in check through their leadership. That's kind of sidereal to what they're actually doing, that's and it. they're in a higher intellectual state yeah that's exactly it so that's uh, th- that might have even been the term i just uh, it was it was when i eventually when i originally came across that information as it related to animals mm-hmm. it made sense to me that you can recognize that there's people that play that role that they are the ones that will step out that will step up they are the ones that will take some form of um moral high ground they're the ones right. that can corral they're very dangerous to the alpha they're extremely dangerous to the alpha and i think that they're the 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 time the timing of those uh sigma uh the 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 substitute alpha uh, coming in um i think that they are mostly uh um, i think that the timing of it is in emergency situations and i think that we're there now and i think that that's what gives me the hope that we will absolutely pull the predators off this project um, before it's too late. And I think that the thing that I've been um, really thinking about lately um, that I, that, you know, we should do this again sometime soon because um, there's a part to this that um, the Sigma will also know how to beat an alpha uh, at their own game. Yeah. And the, the playbook that they're playing and, and something that I, that I want to encourage you, you know, your audience to really start looking at and researching and even giving us feedback and others feedback on is the playbook that they're using and why it's is working uh, is they're using the, the, the philosophy and the science um, of postmodernism. Mm. Um, 
and that gaslighting that we talked about. So postmodernism has a potential of uh, creating this illusion through an understanding of, of, of quantum theory and quantum mechanics that basically everything is plausible and that there's no right and wrong and there's no fact or fiction and that there's um, ultimately that Schrod Schrodinger's cat is both al alive and dead. And for those that don't know what that is, they should go look it up. It's just a mathematical equation that looks at uh, um, uh, from a quantum uh, particle um, experience that you can have a particle uh, being driven and, 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 and that ultimately that it until the observer looks at it, the particles are neither have gone to the left, let's say, or to the right. They're, right. they're waiting. They're waiting to be discovered in terms of where they can go. It, it, right. It's an it's it's called the Heisenberg, Heisenberg uncertainty principle, yes. which was yes. derived into Schrodinger's cat of a cat being put into a box of which nobody could see. There was a radioactive tablet with unknown decay rate that was put in there. And the question is, is the cat alive or dead? And for 80, 90 years, they answered the question that the cat is in a propolistic state of live and dead because they have something known as the collapsing of the wave theory that comes from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. What does yes. that mean is that when something is not measured, you don't know its position, but you know it exists and it's not observed, then it exists in a propolistic waveform in a what they would consider to be at that time locality. What we just found out with the new uh, Nobel Prize in physics last year is that it's actually non-locality in the sense that those things that are unobserved in the universe no longer exist with, so let's just take an atom and an electron. If there's an atom and we're not observing it, but we know that atom's there in that gold molecule, they would believe that that locality would be within the specification of that wave function in that atom. What they just realize is that there's no locality in the sense of non-locality. So the wave functions actually spread through infinity until that point when it's observed and that propolistic function comes into being. And, and so anyways, I... I so I want to use that. I want to use yeah. that in no no differently in the most practical way than a hammer driving in a nail. If they are beating us by using postmodernism with with this idea, like for example, like I don't know that you can see me right now mm -hmm. because I'm identifying as invisible. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope it worked, right? I mean, this is how absurd it is. I right? see what I believe you to be. Okay, but I don't think you can see me right now because I'm identifying as invisible. But what what they borrowing, right? And and this I, I I there was a there was a wonderful part of my master's degree in my training where we started working through these concepts as it relates to psychology. Now the and it, there's a, um, a concept, for example, called naive solipsism, mm -hmm. which is that nothing else exists in the world except for you. Yeah. Like it is a form of narcissism in that everything that's taking place is because you are the center of your own universe and that everything is just built around you. In which case I turned to my professor and said, I will no longer turn on any paper but till, till, uh, you know, until I decide. Uh, maybe I will decide that I'm interested in taking your exams or your papers because if this is my universe, then I get to decide. And I've just decided that you're just going to keep grading me A's because you've just told me that we could be living in a world that's naive solipticism and i'm going to adopt this right yeah. the problem with all of these concepts is that they fallacious if when tested they fail right for example that professor could say to me bullshit i'm failing you <laughs> right if you don't turn in your papers but if that professor for whatever reason let's say it was fear 
or he wants to be included in my game, let's say he, let's say inherently he wanted to prove that solipsism existed, then he could have pacified me by saying, fine, don't turn in anything, I'm still going to pass you. So they're playing with these concepts that are only concepts, right. but they're keeping it alive, right? This is why there's identity politics. This is why they can say that something's effective, safe and effective. That's not. They, they are playing with, with that with Schrodinger's cat. And I want to introduce a concept where we say Schrodinger's cat gets to live hmm. because we decided. Right. We are at the point now where we've opened the box and we've seen the radioactive material. And we've decided that Schrodinger's cat's alive. We found the cat to be alive, which means that ultimately it gives back our voice and our power because we get to decide what the future is. So, so on a small level, what, what it comes down to on a very practical level is that anybody listening to this should say, what steps can I now take in my daily practices that I get to define the narrative? That there's not this thing called the narrative. That ultimately the narrative, as we describe it, is a collection of everybody's self-narrative. Mm -hmm. And that if we choose that we're in a stampede, we're stampeding. And everybody stampedes. But if we choose we're not stampeding, then we all just stop. There's a wonderful part that shows how deep this is in something called chemical clocks. And bacteria have the, uh, the ability to do this. And beetles have the ability to do, uh, uh, use luminescence in synchronicity. Okay. And that as human beings, it would be a really great time in our lifespan to see how powerful we truly are that collectively, when we make decisions, it's unstoppable. Hmm. So if there's enough people, for example, that, that decide that no one put this person, Bill Gates, in charge, and that we decide that he's an actual mass murderer, and that we decide that it's end of the game for him, just like this, like magic, it'll be the end. <laughs> it doesn't actually require that much. It doesn't require a new Nuremberg 2.0. So I call this the banister effect. I've, I've talked about this extensively. The four-minute mile. The four-minute mile. That's right. Yeah. Before that point in time, nobody believed it was possible. You'll have a heart attack if it's done. The Romans, like, oh, it can't happen. Roger Bannister goes out there, does the four-minute mile, and within five years after, you have high schoolers, 13-year-olds, breaking the four-minute mile because it was a learned, the 100 monkeys, 100 monkeys, yeah. right? It's a learned characteristic that's adopted into the mindset or the archetype, if you want to look at it like that. And once we know it's possible, it can now be achieved. And we need to find more and more examples of that, and they need to be deeply practical as well. Like, for example, like we've all seen, okay, so you see in a riot when people turn a car over, right, how easy it is for them, collectively, yeah. 10 of them, right? But we've also seen the videos when someone does it when someone's trapped under a car. So for every person that feels trapped, for every person that's fearful, for every person who's now homeschooling, what we need to do is we just need to think about the fact that we've decided that Schrodinger's cat is going to live, that we're not going to be wiped out and that we're not going to be depopulated and that we're not going to live in 15-minute cities. And that ultimately, that the idea of consciousness, that we're going to beat them at their own game, mm -hmm. if they think that they're in charge, then all we need to do is decide that they're not, collectively. And at the flip of that switch... Everything starts changing from that moment. 
you're, you're spot on. So this is a lot what we do here at the Red Pill Project. So uh, we've been doing this for about three years now. And one of the things that I was, I was teaching people, and, and this is something I learned a lot a long time ago. So I, I, I came from the realm of uh, kind of the Rosicrucian orders, but more hermetic in my study. And when you get into the deeper, higher levels, you start learning various truths, if you want to call them, the, the, the axiom of truth. And that there's something known as the natural laws in ancient alchemy and occultism. Uh, one of those is the law of cause and effect. We can prescribe this to Newton's laws of motion, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, cause and effect. Um, but in actuality, this goes much, much deeper. And the law of cause and effect is interesting because I look at it in the sense of information. Because the only thing that's truly exchanged within this universe is information. You know, there's, there's only one thing that ever happens is that there's a relationship between you and it, whatever it might be, whether it's another human being, whether it's your environment, whether it's this chair or computer, it's always a relationship with something. And that, that relationship is based upon an exchange of energy that we call information. Uh, whether it's heat or cold, either way, it has a carriage of data component to it. And so I always looked at law of cause and effect as what I'd learned is that these are not conceptual points, but states of being. You can live in the realm of causation or you can live in the realm of effect. And the way I describe the realm of effect is a person who goes to work and receives a paycheck is receiving a bribe to forget about their dreams and to work for somebody else's. Why? They have a boss. They go to work. They do what the boss says. The boss pays them for their time. The boss is doing those things to earn a better life for themselves. Another beach house, another Mercedes, whatever it might be. They are biding, bidding their time away for the dreams of somebody else when they could be going out in the realm of causation doing it themselves. As well, as if we look at social media, we look at kind of marketing and how this is all organized. Everything that is coming at people has a variation of a micro-emotional stimulant. It's meant to make you react to your environment, not interact with your environment, not be a causation in your environment, but to react specifically to your environment. A lot of people on the left and a lot of people on the right, they do specifically this. They are not interacting. They are not adding to, but instead reacting to something else somebody else did, someone else's influence. And yes. so you look at this is that, that a dark magician is someone who manipulates the system for their own benefit. And what they do is they keep people in a state of nescience or ignorance. And those people in nescience and ignorance will have something known as karmic affliction. When they screw up in life, the universe is going to punish them. That punishment is a reward the influence that comes back towards the dark magician. Whereas a white magician would operate in the realm of causation to where the alignment of my, my, my archetypes, my mind, my thoughts, my, I, my, my actions and my influences in the universe go out to benefit myself and the others around me of where I am in control of my interaction with my relationships and I don't consistently react to the environment around me that's why when i started the red pill project it's never believe anything anybody tells you no matter who they are what authority they possess or profess unless you can prove it with your own investigation your own inquiry your own research and through your own volition that's kind of how i perceive it i think Love you it. just said the same thing yeah absolutely and i think that it's an absolute urgency to get back to that but i also think that it's my own reaction to going back and and we can we can round this up in terms of two things one 
is that when we talked about this tribe of people that lived in these fertile lands, um, the U.S. equivalent of it, I've actually lived in that area for a little while. Mm -hmm. There's the Gallatin Valley in Montana, of all places, that is so fertile that at one stage the tribes, all the tribes that lived there had uh, agreements not to war in that land. Because they didn't want to spoil it for themselves, they didn't want to have to. They didn't want to have to go uh, um, through this valley and and um, of of Garden of Eden and have to look over their shoulder of thinking that a warring tribe is. So they actually had peace agreements amongst themselves um, because people inherently know that when something is so powerfully abundant that you shouldn't mess with it. Right. And I think that that ultimately, um, uh, for me, um, it's this idea that. Um, we've been driven into a system of inefficiency where everything is inefficient. And so then everything requires a slog of work. And what we need to be able to do is remember that we're not living in an inefficient universe. <laughs> everything is supposed to be efficient and easy. And human beings that want to control make everything purposefully complicated. Right. Like, for example, like one of my supplements, anarchotic, um, I've taken it off Amazon for now. I'm trying to decide what to do with it. Because Amazon penalized me every time that I didn't put in the tracking number um, promptly, um, it would show up uh, that that the the tracking number uh, that the package had gone out and that the tracking numbers were delayed. And then I got an email from them recently saying I'm penalized because the packages were getting to play to people early, <laughs> right? And what they actually want from me is they don't want me shipping my own product, right? What they're trying to do is get me to ship my product to their distribution center so that they can control the shipping, that they can get the discounts on shipping, that they can make their system more efficient. But ultimately, I don't want my stock sitting on it in a distribution center somewhere. Right. I don't want I don't want Amazon uh, only having the interaction with my customers, right? And so ultimately, they create an inefficient system, and then they make people work harder to 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 to, to live. And ultimately, what we've got to do is we've got to have a child's mind. A child's mind goes, would, would basically, a child that's free of fear would go, Daddy, why are you doing it this way? It, there's a much easier way to do it. You're doing it in a stupid way. And then you would say to that child, well, what did you think of? Well, this is how I would do it. And there's that old story. I don't know if it's an urban legend or if it ever truly happened, but there was a story of the truck that was stuck under a bridge and they were trying to move the truck until a kid came right by and let the wheels out, the, the air out of the tires, right? It's that same mentality that they have made everything a slog. Right. And part of what we're going to push them, push back is saying that inherently all of us are smarter than this and that there's a better way to do it and there's a more efficient way to do it. And this is why there's a, the, the, I absolutely want to encourage the movement now of homesteading, uh, of growing your own fruit and vegetables, of sharing. Um, in our area here, we belong to a, um, a buy nothing group, okay. which means that, you know, when you have a, a, a one and a half year old kid, you know, they outgrow everything or their toys, you know, are uh, something that stimulates them for a week or two and then they get bored. Right. So okay. there's these groups where you just tell somebody, somebody puts it out there. I've got a push bike. You may need to replace the grips on the thing, but other than it's great, come and get it. And then when you're done with it, you put it back on the group. This, this, we'll play them at their own game. Yes, it's true. We'll own nothing. Okay. We'll own nothing and we'll be happy. We'll change that to we'll buy nothing from you <laughs> and we'll be happy because truly 
uh, one of the things that I want to tell people that are, uh, you know, were born in the U.S. is uh, from an African's perspective, I grew up in South Africa, um, something that I never got used to in living in cities or in suburbs, but especially in New York City, is walking past and seeing like a brand new sofa on the curb mm-hmm. or a TV or a TV stand or an iron or, you know, in Africa, there's no way that somebody would be throwing out stuff that's still useful. Right. Right. Because everything is valuable. It's this non-psychopathic way. It's the sentimentality that if you've got a dining room table and you can afford another one, if you want a bigger one or if you've outgrown it, somebody else needs it. So a part to beating them is to say, you're right. It's not that we won't own shit. We'll own a lot, but we'll own it for generations. Right. And we'll buy nothing and we'll be happy. And until you behave yourself, we're not buying from you again. It's interesting you said that, too. And I know we got to wrap things up here. Um, In the military, there is one thing is, uh, you know, in 2004 to to 2008, I'm on a, a U.S. Navy ship. And I'm working on technology that was literally engineered in the 50s and built in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, you're talking about 512 kilobytes of RAM in a box like this big that's shielded in, you know, three quarter inch aluminum Faraday cages with circuit card components that are easily pullable out. And, uh, you know, a processor that's, you know, like a 500 megahertz processor. I mean, these are nothing. And I asked a lot of the older guys that were like working for Spay War and stuff like that. They would come on and help me fix these things and taught me about all these different systems I was working on because they were old school Navy. They were in the Navy in the 70s and 80s when this stuff was top, top gen. And they said, the reason you still have this today is because number one, it works. Number two, it's efficient. And number three, because of one and two, there's no point in replacing it. That's exactly it. And, you know, we were talking about how we give these ships to Australia. And I was, I went to school with a a bunch of uh, Polish, Ukrainian, Taiwanese, and Australian sailors. And one of the things that the Australians were saying is that when they get these ships, they rip all that old stuff out and replace it with a laptop. And my instructor was laughing. The instructor was one of these guys. He's laughing. And the Polish, the, the Australians like, well, why are you laughing? He goes... That's all great until you get hit by a missile or a torpedo and you have massive shockwaves that are sent through that ship and that computer no longer boots up or an EMP strikes and that computer is useless and your whole weapon system is down. There's reasons why we still use this technology because it was made to last and last through everything. And it's interesting to note too because it's around that same time, the mid-1990s when Uh, manufacturing and processing started to be sent overseas to China and Mexico that they changed the manufacturing process of a lot of materials within the world, especially electronic and consumer goods. And they degraded the quality of the products, but kept the price tag relatively the same or even more because it looks stylish to where your TV would no longer last 50, 60 years. This thing only lasts about three to four years and then dicks out because they have this level of consumerism of, oh, we want you to come back in three years and get a new car, uh, get a new TV or every five years and get a new car. And this ex- exasperates 
their whole climate change agenda because it was the companies like Walmart and so forth that actually filled up the landfills and polluted the oceans by this expression of, of consumerism that they promoted and actually created during the 90s. And then they come out with their philanthropies and go, look at this river and this ocean. They're all polluted and we need to clean them. And so it's just funny to look at it in that perspective. So we, we need to take that and we need to actually, this is how we beat them at their own game. So while they talk about climate control, um, they also, this, like you just said, the same companies are making products with, with, with a limited um, lifespan, right? Yeah. And so we just need to say, you know, farmers out there need to start saying, no, we, we care about the climate. Uh, so therefore, we're, we're not buying these massive combine harvest, uh, harvesters anymore. We're going old school. I'm going to use my grandfather's tractor, right? Yeah. We, we just take what they're giving us. And then instead of you know, all the philosophical concepts, we turn, it on its, uh, we turn it upside down and we solve their problem that they're saying that, they, that they've got. Uh, another one would be basically like uh, saying, you know, um, uh, um, you know, 15-minute cities, mm -hmm. right? Um, okay, well, no, we, we don't want to live in 15-minute cities, but what we got to be doing instead um, is we, we, we're moving back out to the countryside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we're going to, we're going to take your thing where you say that you're going to impose this travel restriction on us. And we don't mind, except that the things that we need, we need to be closer to. And so we're out Bye, right. Um, it, it's going to force, it's going to, it's going to force them to, to actually, um, they can't keep doubling down. If we take their problems and solve the problems that they're stating for us is, is I guess, a summary of, of some of my thinking around around how Schrodinger's cat gets to live um, under our watch. And, and in some way, like it, it's basically um, what I've been doing from the beginning and what you've been doing is as problem solvers, um, you the other the last thing I want to encourage people to do is something that I've been aware of lately. And I'm glad it didn't happen in the show. I was I was almost a little afraid. Um, because of your wealth of knowledge, um, lately I've been thinking about that more and more. I've been having to be asked these really complicated questions to things like chemistry. You know, mm -hmm. I thought we maybe would get into like um, uh, being concerned about phosphates, for example, and how that interacts with the vaccine. And lately I've been thinking about that. That's another way to put me in a kill box yeah. because I'm not a chemical engineer. So where are the chemical engineers answering these questions? So the more and more that there's only a few people taking on the tasks is another way that they would. And so what I'm going to start doing also is I'm going to say, I'm not sure, but I've got this guy that can explain it better than I can explain it. This yeah. is what I found. This is the information that I've got, but I've got a better teller of the knowledge than, than, than I've got. I think that there's been a lot of us during this pandemic that have taken on the, sh we've shouldered the role of the few, but it's not sustainable. Right. And I, so I now agree. I'm shifting that. I'm shifting that. I'm going, okay, I don't know that much about the chemicals that were released, but let's find somebody that can talk about those chemicals. Well, and feel free to, you know, hit me up and we can put stuff out. We have a, a private social network that we have and we got thousands of people on there and i i'm almost positive we got a few chemical engineers on there there we go and that's a you know, my, my, my stepmother who lives in California, who's a Chinese national who went to MIT and uh, graduated, obviously, met him, uh, or whatever the fuck it is from MIT. Uh, she's a biochemical engineer 
Um, that's how I have knowledge on the topic. I grew up with her. My father developed molecular modeling software for pharmaceutical firms, and she was a biochemical engineer. And I was the American Chemical Society student for four years in a row, two years in college and two years in high school uh, in advanced AP classes. And I loved biology and physics and chemistry, and it was my life. That's why I have an understanding of it. I can go and read papers. I can read textbooks. Right, right. As well as, you know, it, it helps when you have um, – when you have a passion for science, right, to, to understand science. But you're right, is we, we need more experts to come in and answer these questions. Uh, another aspect of what you're just talking about there is dioxins, that the majority of these train crashes, derailments that we've seen have released an abundance of dioxins. Now, dioxins are noted, noted as two very as a very, very harmful environmental um, toxin because one of the things that it does is it produces infertility and it suppresses the immune system. And I said, oh, wow, isn't that interesting that every single one of these derailments that we've had, every single one of these fires that we've seen in the last week, all release dioxins out into the atmosphere. And this is exactly their purpose is depopulation, suppress the immune system, allow to kill and die off. And for everybody out there who's wondering the, the title as per our conversation is we did talk about the depopulation of the world. We just did it from a psychological perspective of how these people actually think and what they're actually doing. And if you understood this conversation tonight, then you can understand what they're doing now and what their next moves are. And I completely- I think it's crucial. Yeah. I mean, it's crucial. I mean, all of it is relevant. All of it's important. But I think that we're still needing to make sure that a lot of people are still um, are still basically like thinking about- um, uh, you know, the end goal over here. And a lot of people are still on that um, slightly uncertain path. And I think that um, what to round this up for me is that until until people hear more of the thinking, especially around what, how a psychopath thinks, um, we, they don't get to, 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 to step into that role of what you define as sigma. They don't get right. to hear it as urgent. You know, it, 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 I think it's the reason that a lot of people have still been AWOL. And with that, I can't be AWOL anymore. i got to go let the pups out. Um, <laughs> and thank you. It's always such a pleasure to speak to you. And let's do this again soon. Absolutely, Dr. Talbron. For Before you go, biochemscience.com. I shared the link in all the chats. You guys can go there and find out his various different products, copperine as well as anacardic. And then as well, if you just want to visit him, it's drtaubron.com, D-R-T-A-U-B-R-A-U-N.com. And that is linked up at all. This is going to be a part one of a different part series. We're going to have him back and we're going to have another discussion. Maybe we'll bring in, you know, David Whitehead, DW Truth Warrior, good friend of mine. He's out in Rumble. He's chatting it up with everybody saying it's a fantastic show. Maybe we'll bring him in and we'll all have a great conversation. But Dr. Taubron, thank you, my friend. Hats off to you. You have a great night. Everybody else, we're going to be going to Fringe After Dark here in just a few minutes. That's on the Social Red Pill. Got to go to socialredpill.com. It's his live Zoom. I'm going to share the information, and uh, we'll see you guys there, socialredpill.com. Have a good night, everybody. Either we will get the full cooperation of other governments to stop this menace, or we will expose every bribe, every kickback, every payoff, and every bit of corruption that is allowing the cartels to preserve their brutal reign. And it is indeed brutal. And uh, they call me iPatch McCain. <laughs> I, it's, I think it's, I, I haven't, look. 
frankly, uh, if you look at the media, where the media is a closed media, we don't have an open free media anymore. They don't want to hear anything. They don't write about it. It's a, it's collusive. It's uh, nobody's ever seen anything like it. It all happened during this period of time. It happened just before the election. They wouldn't talk about certain subjects that you know better than anybody, Michael. And uh, you know that's the beginning of communism.